It's my privilege to be with you folks, and thank you, Jesse and Lolita and Aaron, for that music and helping us worship. And thank you, Knox. <laughs> I am so grateful for that guy. He and his, his daddy and my dad, we've got a lot in common as we have agonized over the church various times. I just appreciate so much Dr. Jim Baird's voice on a telephone. When I'm calling him late at night wondering, am I really supposed to be in the ministry? My dad's voice calming me and reminding me of his call on my life. I want to read from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, beginning with verse 17 and reading to the end of that chapter. This is the word of God, inerrant. You can trust it. It's his word. Let's hear his word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, our Father, 
we ask for your spirit, your spirit to illumine your word to our hearts, but also to give us ready hearts to hear your word to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I got so excited when I saw the bulletin that Knox sent me. Two sacraments. It's like an African church. Two sacraments on the same Sunday. All we needed was about seven choirs and eight other things going on in the church. Because in Africa, church is an all-day affair. I know you're worried. We're going to try to get out and beat the Baptist to Cracker Barrel, but I got so excited when I saw that sacrament of baptism. Were you encouraged too? It tenderizes your heart, doesn't it? It's supposed to. And we're supposed to look to our baptisms and learn how to improve on our baptisms. Just watching those little kids get brought into the church. But I saw that tablecloth there across the table. And I remembered as a kid how exciting it was when you saw something white go up there on the table in front of the pulpit every Sunday that we had it. Dad, who was an architect, said there are three pieces of furniture in a Presbyterian church. The baptismal fount, that table in the pulpit. Anything else is extra. And someone said, well, what about the altar? He says, don't worry about that. The altar is in heaven. It's already fixed. But I wanted to bring something encouraging to you as a church. It, this pivotal, very strategic moment in the life of this church. You're praying. You're waiting for the next guy. You'll have an interim guy. And it's, I thank the Lord with you because I'm excited about that too. But I thought about the Lord's Supper. And I thought maybe we can bring some encouragement here about this supper. Because it is a different kind of table in front of us now. How were you called to supper? Were you called to supper? Supper time! Mom just turned on a light on the porch when she flicked that switch. That meant stop the Sandlot football game in the street and come in to eat. But then there was the next demand. Come to the table. Because you'd be fooling around in the den. And then the next command was come to the table. That meant everything's ready. Don't lollygag. This is time to eat. There's another table where people say come to the table. And that's usually a table of of meeting somewhere in a boardroom. That's not always fun. It usually says, we got trouble, we got to deal with it. And if you're in Africa, it would help to have food following because if there's reconciliation, there must be food to signify we're together, we're on the same playing field. But this is a different table because it's Christ's table. The invite is large. The invite is wide. There was some church history. 1648 is when we get the Westminster Confession of Faith and all that's in it. But they were dealing with some things there that made this 
particular chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians a little nervous, made people nervous. And so in the confession, you'll see some great pains taken about how to observe the Lord's Supper. In Scotland, it was literally fenced, like a waist-high fence around this section of the sanctuary. And elders visited the home and gave a token after examination, gave a token, a little coin, that one would present at the fence to have entrance into the communion table. Nervous, scared. And if you look at questions 172 to 175 in the larger catechism, I was brought up on the catechisms. I had to learn the shorter catechism, but we had to learn the larger catechism. You didn't have to recite it all. But 172 to 175, are some scary questions. In fact, I told my father, I don't want to take communion. It scares me. The part that I just read about the judgment, let's, let's look into this. But first, let's remind ourselves about that invitation. In our Book of Church Order, it says, in the name of Jesus and by his mercy and love, we call all to participate in the sacrament. All who heartily place their trust in Christ all who are truly sorry for their sins and by his help endeavor to lead a holy life. What's wrong with that invitation? It's great, isn't it? The sacrament is an act of covenant renewal for the people of God. It is the bond and pledge of their union with Christ and with each other as members of his body. Let's don't forget that part. So the baptized members of his body include those of our local church, as well as those who might be members of a local church somewhere else. As to our worthiness to partake, in Christ we are made worthy to come. Christ is our righteousness. Well, even doubters are covered. If you belong to him, the Lord Jesus, and his visible body, the church, yet you're a little shaky. You've got some doubts today about partaking. What does the scripture say? What does our book of church order say? Then you are encouraged to come to the table. The sacrament is here for us as a means of grace to increase our faith. It's a big help to improve on our baptism. It helps me to be reminded all the time at the Lord's Supper of what happened in Scotland many, many years ago when a wise elder came upon a young girl and he was offering her the elements of the Lord's Supper. And she hesitated and she started crying and she said, I'm not worthy. And you know what the wise elder said? He said, take it, lassie. It is for sinners. It's for us. It's for us. Come to the table. But of course, the unrepentant, they should be discouraged about partaking. And those who are not yet members of his church, don't leave. In California, in the church we had out there, there were many people who sat out the Lord's Supper part of the service and later came to the church and joined the church because they saw something happening as the 
participants observed the Lord's Supper. So what happened in Corinth? How did they mess up something so wonderful as the Lord's Supper observance when they gathered together? How does one get this going sideways? Let's look at it closely together. After serious talk on decorum, many years I didn't know what decorum was. I was called down for it, but it just means behavior. Paul says this, beginning with verse 17. I'm grateful for the ESV because it continues that run together with the Lord's Supper ordinance and calls it one piece. I'm, I'm glad for that because it keeps the context together for us. Paul says in verse 17 in certain words, your meetings do more harm than good. Well, what he says is when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Ouch. The harm's done, Paul says, when they come together. And then verse 18, he says, divisions and factions manifest themselves right at the point where they come together as the church fellowship. Verses 18 and 20. It's a giant contradiction, isn't it? The gathered fellowship, Paul described it earlier in 1 Corinthians 3.16, the temple of God's spirit. And we ask then this question. Wasn't the spirit, the spirit of Jesus, the one who incorporated them as diverse as this group at Corinth was into one body? 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 25. This was to be the common meal, the very occasion when you'd expect to see the greatest realization of the vision for caring and mutuality in the church. But here instead, these folks have manifested a haughty, individualistic disregard for one another. Some of the big guns in scholarship suggest that what's going on is hinted at in Jude and in Second Peter where the love feast is mentioned. And in both situations, some bad guys have snuck into the fellowship and are behaving badly. Peter, I consider him one of the hugging disciples. He's a hugger. Because remember, he says at the end of his first letter, he says there, greet one another with a kiss of love. You know how the great British guy, J.B. Phillips, translated that, give everybody a handshake. <laughs> yeah, we had a Bible study right after I became a Christian in New Orleans, a Bible study for hippies, and some of the guys got carried away with that verse. And I had to say, wait a minute, we better use J.B. Phillips' translation. The love feast was supposed to be a festive occasion when, what, what, when what, what was to be central would be a caring, demonstrative love for one another, grounded in Christ's sacrificial death. And this was awfully absent in Corinth. Look at your verses 20 and 21. They were eating and drinking in an individualistic and selfish manner. Some were apparently more affluent and had brought their own food. I doubt if it was gluten-free. Without waiting for others, maybe not even waiting for the blessing, they'd gone ahead and eaten. 
too much and they drunk too much, apparently. Poor members were humiliated, verse 22. Rather than sharing out of their abundance, as in Jerusalem in Acts 4.32, those with means acted as if they were their own, they were in their own homes. It was not the Lord's Supper they were eating, but their own. And Paul says it was a show of despising the church of God. Think of the ladies in the kitchen for that fellowship supper watching that. I learned a lot when I volunteered to help the ladies clean up after fellowship suppers in the kitchen. I did. I learned how to be a pastor. I'm grateful. But those ladies watching this behavior must have been, as we say in good Southern tradition, incensed. Paul laid out their irregularity of this gathering, and then Paul reminds them of the words of Jesus in the upper room, verses 23 to 25. In these words, symbolically represented in the broken bread and poured out wine, Jesus, one, interpreted the significance of his life and death. It is for them. It's for us. And two, Jesus declares that a new covenant has been inaugurated through the sacrifice of his blood poured out, prefigured when Moses lifted up those big basins of blood long ago. Paul said they had been made participants in that new covenant community. As he reminded them in chapters 10 and verse 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. When they ate and drank and heard the word of the Lord, they were to remember him. Their eating and drinking was to be a declaration, a proclamation, a preaching, if you will, of the Lord's self-sacrifice. Let's go further. The remembering and proclaiming of his suffering servanthood on our behalf is a call to discipleship and thereby an imitation of Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. It surely was what folks in Corinth should be about and us folks in Hattiesburg as well. But instead, the Corinthians were eating the bread of the Lord and drinking from the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. This is the issue, not the unworthiness of the individual. If that were the case, no one would be worthy. None of us would be taking communion. These folks in Corinth were participating, not one incident now, this was a pattern in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner by demonstrating contempt for the community as a whole by actions not controlled by love for the needy brothers and sisters. It's in this that they were guilty of what the NIV says, sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Our version says guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Paul's thrust here is that those who eat and drink unworthily are guilty of Christ's sacrificial death. They are opposing and contradicting in their loveless behavior the very purpose of Christ's death. That purpose was to create a new covenant community which will model in the midst of a broken and fragmented world a brand new way of servanthood, seeking the good of others. Verse 28, in this context, 
Self-examination means recognizing properly the body of the Lord. Little b, not capital B. There is this vertical and horizontal dimension to our worship. Let's not forget it. Now, I'm a Presbyterian. I take seriously this business of meditating on our sin, the necessity for Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. But remember the old Scott Robert Murray McShane, look once at your sin 10 times at the cross at our Savior, Jesus. So soberly, reverently, respectfully, let's observe the Lord's Supper. But don't forget the body horizontally. In Africa, I was teaching seminary to Congolese students, and someone slipped in questions 172 to 175 in the larger catechism. And they turned to this very passage that we're reading here. And they envisioned that the church in America was envisioning a ghost, a mystical body of Jesus. No, 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 no. It's you guys. It's all of us. It's the body of Christ. In a string of verses, 10, 17, 12, chapter 12, 2 to 13, and verse 27, Ephesians 2, 16, 3, 6, and 4, 4, Colossians 1, 18. Paul uses the same word for the body of Christ. Not to discern the body of the Lord is to fundamentally misunderstand the nature of Christian community and to act in a way that submarines the church's validity, life, and witness. That's under God's judgment. To harm the body of Christ is to oppose the very purpose of God, for which the Lord's body was broken and his life blood poured out. Come to the table. Don't hesitate. Africans take note that meals figure very prominently in the Gospel of Luke. As the meals with Jesus feature very prominently in his life and teaching, then the behavior in Corinth is seen as abhorrent to my Congolese buddies. The picture described in 1 Corinthians 11 is a shocking display of bad manners. Nobody eats before somebody else. And nobody eats something that the others don't get to eat. We cannot dismiss the idea that the Last Supper has as a part of its meaning that it offers continuation of table fellowship with the Lord Jesus. It's a celebration of the success and victory of Jesus' costly sacrifice as he reconciles to himself characters like you and me. If I may use our Lord's series of metaphors in Luke 15, the finding of lost sheep, a lost coin, and a son, and the celebration that follows each parable, we learn that Jesus is the hero of that banquet and that sinners like ourselves are never, ever the center of attention. 
You note in the parable of the prodigal son that the older brother gets it wrong. He thinks the celebrating is for his younger brother. He's furious. No, the younger son is sitting with and eating with the one who offered costly love to win him into fellowship with himself. That parable foreshadows the final climactic meal with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. The mood celebrating the price paid for by the shepherd for the lost sheep, the good woman looking for the lost coin, and the father who found the lost son is not forgotten at each party, at the close of each parable, but the atmosphere is one of joy, of the success and victory of finding the lost. Where am I going? It should be meditative. It should be sobering and somber, but it should also be joyful, shouldn't it? If we're concentrating on the victory and the glory that is due the one who rescued us. In First Church, Gulfport, many, many years ago, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, there were two elders who were brothers who hated each other. For years, they couldn't stand to be in the same room with each other. And at communion one Sunday, all of a sudden, they looked at each other as they were getting ready to go forward to pick up the elements. And they dropped everything back on the table, went to each other and hugged. Is that allowed in your church during communion? Is it okay to whisper to a friend and say, hey, would you pray for me during this particular time? Are we freed up enough to maybe have somebody say, I've got an urgent request, Pastor. Can we bring this forward? Not forget the horizontal as well as that vertical. Come to the table. The parable of the two lost sons and the outrageously gracious dad continue, continues to work on me. You know, the one I most easily identify with is the younger son. That's my life story. I went and squandered everything to a bunch of Gentiles, left home, was almost given up for dead. And the Father in heaven received me. And it changed the whole ball game. And then I found out that I could also become like an older brother. When I saw some people coming into the church that were celebrating a little bit too care carelessly. And I didn't want to go into the party. Recognize. We've got some things going on in here. But he, he is able. And he's able to take that heart and make that heart of yours so, so welcoming to all kinds of sinners because you're like one of them. I'm inviting you to come to the table, not just into the room, come to the table and celebrate his victory, 
His glory for characters, sinners like you and me. Come. Will you come gratefully? Will you come joyfully? I urge you to come. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, get our hearts ready for the table. We hear your words, though, your invitation to us. Help us, Lord, surrender and gladly come forward. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.